just highlighted in the video, empty is often a negative word. As you remember in the video that you just heard, there's an empty uh, milk carton, uh, there's an empty bank account, there's an empty chair, an empty house. Um, I'm going to add one to the list. This one is important in the Glidden house, and that is an empty Easter egg. So I live with three opinionated children, a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. And you know what they're very opinionated about? Empty Easter eggs. You know what they're sick of? They're sick to death of going to Easter egg hunts and collecting empty eggs. So for those of you who don't know, there's this trend amongst Easter egg hunts where you go out and the kids collect all the eggs and then they turn in empty eggs to the people and then they give them candy. It's some brilliant adults sat around and were like, you know, we could save ourselves a tremendous amount of time <laughs> if we did it this way, but my kids won't tolerate it anymore. They're sick of collecting empty eggs. Um, the video helped us see that empty isn't always a negative word. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning, and I'm going to actually give you an opportunity to respond, is let's think of other things other than the tomb, things that you are happy to find empty. Think of this as an informal family feud. Things that you are happy to find empty. Yes, Jeff? Me being a school bus driver, I like an empty bus. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. Something we like to find empty. The laundry basket. Oh, the laundry basket. That was on my list. Yes, the laundry basket. Oh, man, just shout it out. I can't get to you. Oh, the line at McDonald's. That comes from a worker, not the owner. Empty line at McDonald's, he said. Anybody else? Something good to find empty? Oh, over here. What? A mail truck spoken by a male person. Empty trash can. Empty trash can. Yes, thank you. And the, old, the last one I had thought of, I'm sure you've got other good ones, is uh, an empty sink. Yeah, that's a good one. We like to see an empty sink. I was going to say empty dishwasher, but I actually prefer an empty sink. Empty dishwasher means you're supposed to load it. <laughs> I prefer the empty sink. So empty. Jesus fills the empty. That's what we want to focus on this morning. Jesus fills the empty. The first place I want us to look at in our scripture this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. As I turn there, I'll pray for us. Our Heavenly Father... We come to you and we're anticipating hearing from you from your word, Lord, that's inspired. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and our minds this morning as we read your word and meditate on its truths. And we pray, Lord, that we would leave here different, a little bit more like Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, I want to read this for you. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was in the town of Ephesus. And this is what he writes to them. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the age to come. 
and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in those verses that I just read, I like to just imagine the Apostle Paul isn't just speaking those to the church that meets in the town of Ephesus, but to the church that meets here in Pittsburgh, that meets here at Northgate Church. And so this is our heart. We've said, as you gathered here today, I have heard of our shared faith in Jesus. And I give thanks for you, and I pray for you. We pray for one another that we would have the spirit of wisdom. We pray for one another that we would know the hope to which we have called, been called, that we would know the riches of our glorious inheritance. And then verse 19 is beautiful to read on, on an Easter morning, and that we would understand the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It is the same power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And that's what's beautiful. As we celebrate Easter this morning and Jesus rising from the dead, it's verses like this that should really inspire you and realize that if the Holy Spirit is within you, then the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is within you. And that should be an empowering and inspiring thing to be reminded of this morning. But what I really love about this passage this morning is verses 22 to 23 that close out the section. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all and in all. Paul is telling us that the church, us, the church, you and I, we are his body. And as his body, we are his fullness. Now that's, that's a beautiful thing to think about. I mean, as a body, we're all different, right? We all have different abilities. We have different skills. We have different backgrounds. And we have different spiritual gifts that God has given us. And as we all come together, we form a body. Some of us are our toes, and some of us are fingers, and some of us are spleens, and some of us are eyes and noses, and we're all different. And in our great diversity in this room, we come together in unity as the body of Christ. So as we gather here on Easter Sunday as the church of God, we are his body. We are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I like it worded that way even better than fills all in all. When you read the Jesus fills all in all. It's a little bit confusing. A better way to say it is Jesus fills everything in every way. Jesus fills. That's what we're talking about this morning. Jesus fills the empty. So what does it mean, though? Like, it sounds good, but what does it mean that Jesus fills everything in every way? Well, to answer that question in the best way, I think you just turn your Bibles back to the very first page in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you actually look at verse 2, it says, um, and the earth was formless and empty. So when it says that Jesus fills everything in every way, you know how that makes sense? When you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, you know what? God, who is eternal... He looked down and he saw that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and he spoke everything into existence. He fills everything in every way because prior to him, it was just an empty, formless void. So he fills everything you see in creation is him filling all things. And if you read through the account of Genesis chapter 1 and how he creates the world, it's really beautiful. We don't have time to go into it, but, but in, there, there are corresponding days in the account of creation. So think of you've got day 1, day 2, day 3. Over here you've got day 4, day 5, day 6. Day 1 corresponds to day 4 in this way. On day 1 he creates light. 
But then on day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars, the giver of light. So on day two, he creates the water and the sky. You know what he does on the corresponding day of day five? He creates fish. And he says he creates the fish to fill the water. And he creates the birds to fill the sky. You know what he says when he, after he creates the land on day three? The corresponding day of day six, you know what he creates? He creates animals to fill the land. And the crowning achievement of all his creation is whenever he creates man and woman in his image. And what does he tell the man and the woman who are created in his image to reflect him to the world? What does he tell them to do? He says, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. He says, you're created in my image, so you're going to do what I do. And you're going to fill the earth with my glory. The whole world is full of Jesus. He is filling the world. We worship a God who fills what is empty. And you'll find that theme throughout the pages of Scripture. Psalm 33, 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 72, 19, blessed be the glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Jesus' own teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Ephesians 5, 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine, rather be filled with the Spirit. Jesus fills the empty, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Before we leave this idea behind from Ephesians chapter 1, let's, let's make an observation about something, particularly from Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The principle is this, that what fills you rules you. So if you fill yourself with wine, we all know what happens. The wine will rule you. If you fill yourself with anger, the anger will rule you. And so what Scripture is telling us is if you fill yourself with Jesus, then Jesus will rule you. He will rule in your life. So the question becomes, what is filling you? What is in your egg? Our family will go home this afternoon and we'll have an egg hunt. Eggs scattered throughout our yard and they'll collect them and they'll open them up and there will be candy in them because that's what the kids demand. <laughs> but let's just imagine, like what if they pick up, what if we had a little egg hunt today? What if you go out there and this egg is your life, right? You find your life and you open it up, your life, and we're looking at what is filling you. What, what falls out of your egg? Is it money? Is it money? Is it love of money that, that is filling us and motivating us? You open up your egg, what falls out? Maybe it's just lots and lots of pictures of yourself. Because a lot of us are just pretty self-obsessed people. And we just always think about ourselves. Maybe your egg dumps out a whole bunch of shiny things that blow away in the wind. They look real pretty for a moment, but fundamentally they're just a whole bunch of distractions, a whole bunch of shiny things that we fill ourselves up with through constant scrolling or constant entertainment, constant distractions. What is filling you? And the invitation from Jesus is that he wants to fill you. He wants to fill you. And if you open up an egg that is full of Jesus, you know what comes pouring out? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That comes pouring out of your egg if you fill yourself up with Jesus. 
Jesus knows that's better. That's better than anything else you could put in. So you see, my kids just might have it wrong. The empty egg is actually the best kind because Jesus fills that which is empty. And so it could be that you and I, as application today, need to make some space for Jesus. That we filled ourselves up with all these other things. And here is the invitation from Jesus. I want to fill you. But if you're already full of all this other stuff, how is there any space for me inside? Jesus fills the empty. But we've gathered here today to celebrate the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Our risen Savior. But interestingly, the tomb does not remain empty. And here's what I mean by that. The tomb is empty, and then people come to it. So Peter runs into the tomb. So the tomb doesn't remain empty. The tomb is empty, and then people are invited into that empty tomb to see if it's true. If you were listening whenever I read earlier in the service, Luke 24, 1 to 12, you heard me read about how the women arrived first. And they see the stone rolled away, and the women go in, and and they meet the two uh, angels, and they go back, and they tell the 11 apostles and those who are with them. And did you hear what it said in verses 11 and 12? It said, but these words, the words from the women, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So when I say that the tomb remained empty, I mean Peter and the others return to the tomb, and they go in and they investigate for themselves. Think about it this way. I heard it explained this way by Kathy Keller. She asked this question. She said, have you ever thought about why did Jesus roll back the stone? Why is the stone rolled away? Now, does Jesus need the stone rolled away? No. Like, read the accounts of Jesus post-resurrection. He appears in rooms. He seems to move through walls. Post-resurrection or pre-resurrection, Jesus does what he wants to do. He walks on water. He heals the sick. He uh, makes five loaves and two fish feed thousands of people. Jesus can do what he wants with the world that he created. So he doesn't need the stone rolled away. So then you ask yourself the question, well, then why did the stone roll away? And here's the reason. It's because Jesus, God, our creator, he knows human beings. Because he created them in his image to be a curious people. To be a people that ought not to follow Things that aren't credible. That ought not to just follow lies and made up things, but should follow things that actually have credibility. He created people that within their curiosity will go into an empty tomb and seek to understand. And so the tomb doesn't remain empty. The tomb is open and people come in and they investigate and they try to see, is this credible? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, no one is gathered here today and is inviting anyone to believe in a fairy tale or to believe in a lie or a made-up story. And maybe that's how Easter seems to you or maybe that's how Easter seems to a friend or a family member that you might see today or this week. But that is not what Easter is about. And if you're like Peter and and you see this is just an empty, idle tale, it says, and you don't believe, then if that's you or if it's someone you know, then that's respectable position. Because that's how Peter responded. Peter said, you know what? You're just telling me that. That's not enough. I need to investigate. And so I can respect someone who says, I don't know. 
you telling me isn't enough. I can respect that response. But Peter at least gets up off his butt and he exercises himself to go down and investigate and to see if it's true. And that's the respectable response. Most people that I talk to that question Christianity or question faith haven't actually picked up the Bible and read it very much at all. And so the invitation is, if you don't believe it, if it seems like an idle tale, then pick it up and read it. Or investigate in some way, because what I'm telling you is 2,000 years ago, something happened. And if it's not Jesus raising from the dead, then you tell me what it is. Because we changed the whole way we tell time because something happened 2,000 years ago. My family and I went to Washington, D.C. on Monday and Tuesday. We toured the Capitol and we saw some of the Smithsonian Museums. You walk through there, and on most of the exhibits, they've managed, they've gone through and changed the time from A.D. to C.E. Fine. But they've missed a few. They haven't updated all of them. They've still got a few A.D.s lingering around in the museums. Whether it's C.E. or A.D., it's really a mute point. The point is, we changed the whole way we tell time because something happened 2,000 years ago. And so we should figure out what that is, shouldn't we? Something happened in which a whole bunch of people, a lot of people in this room, choose to hang a cross around their neck, decorate their homes with crosses, hang them on the walls, fill them in cemeteries. You know what a cross is? It's an emblem. It is a picture, an icon of the most brutal way that one could execute another individual. The longest and most painful death that has been created was the cross, and we wear them around our necks and hang them on our walls. Now, why would that be? So you have some investigation to do. Why is it that we celebrate Christmas and Easter? Why is it that our hospitals, many of them are Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic? What are the roots of adoption and foster care? What motivated some of our greatest artists and composers like Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Leonardo and Michelangelo? Da Vinci, why is it that our storytelling, our movies and our, our plays and our books, why is it that we are consistently moved, deeply affected by sacrifice, forgiveness, and grace? So you have some investigating to do. Your friend or your family member has some investigating to do. No one's being invited to believe a fairy tale or a lie or a legend. They're being invited to investigate the claims that Jesus died and rose from the dead. We give you as a gift today as you leave. Um, I think we have enough for one per family, but if you have somebody in mind to give it to, then, then, then grab an extra one and, and we'll get more. But this is a wonderful little book. It's called Is, is, is Easter Unbelievable? It's written by Rebecca McLaughlin. Let me read for you just, just the, the, a brief part of the introduction. It says, Mommy, what do mermaids eat? This question came from my three-year-old, Luke. Well, mermaids aren't real, I explained. And he followed up, are elephants real? (laughs) He subsequently wondered about snakes, cows, pigs, and monkeys, despite having seen some of these in the flesh. I guess it's confusing when you're three. I read him stories about both real and imaginary things, so how is he to know the difference? One solution would be for me to just read him works of fact, but so many of the Best stories feature not quite real things. Magic, mermaids, dragons, and implausibly happy endings. Skipping ahead a bit, she writes, In car rides with my kids right now, we're listening to Peter Pan. Famously, when the fairy, t- when the fairy Tinkerbell is dying, she tells Peter she thinks she could get well again if children believed in fairies. Peter appeals to children everywhere, If you believe, clap your hands and don't let Tink die. 
However old we might be, part of us will want to clap when this appeal comes. If not for fairies, then for something magical to lift us out of the mundane and never-lasting. So are these happy endings just a scam? A gentle lie we tell to kids until they're old enough to know the truth? Or might there truly be a way for us to live happily ever after? In this short book, I want to make a hope-filled case that the answer to that last question is yes. That's what she does in the book. It's wonderful writing. It's short and it's simple. And if you have someone you can give it to, we encourage you to take it or, or read it for yourself today. Jesus didn't need to roll the stone away. He gladly rolled the stone away so that you and your friends and your family would enter in and investigate and to try to, with their hearts full of curiosity, see if this could be true. Jesus fills the empty and he invites you into that empty tomb. And then finally, before we close, I want us to answer the question, but how? How does Jesus fill the empty? It's something that's easy to preach, it's easy to talk about, it's a nice metaphor, but, but how does Jesus fill the emptiness? And so for us to understand that, I want us to read Romans 15, 13 as our last scripture passage today. And it says this. This is, again, Paul writing a letter, this time to a church that's in the town of Rome. Romans 15, 13. This is his prayer for this church. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? How does the God of hope fill us with joy and peace? It says, in believing. In believing. If someone came to me today and said, I just don't have peace and joy in my life. And my gut impulse would be to respond to that person and say, well, okay, if you don't have peace and joy in your life, are you, are you reading the Bible? Because that's really important for you to read the Bible because this is really our source of truth. And as it comes into your mind and your heart, then this can give you peace and joy. Or I might say, okay, I can feel for you. Have you prayed? Have you asked God to give you peace and joy in your life? Because he is the source of all good gifts. So have you prayed? I might even say, are you in fellowship? Because if you don't have peace and joy, and, and it's because you're living isolated from other Christians, then that could be why you don't have peace and joy in your life. Because sometimes we have need to be around fellow Christians and have that fellowship and borrow some of the peace and joy of my friend when I don't have it in my life. But you know what I probably wouldn't think to say when someone asks me where to find their peace and joy? I probably would forget to ask this very simple question. Are you believing? Because peace and joy come as we believe. Because if we don't believe, then this is just content. And if we don't believe then our prayers are just empty words. And if we don't believe, then our fellowship is just socializing. Imagine with me if Romans 15, 13 were written this way. This is a little bit of a Bible study method that you won't hear anywhere else. Replace the word belief with the word surfing. Okay? This is non-traditional Bible study. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in surfing. 
And so you come to me and you say, I don't have peace and joy in my life. And I say, okay, have you read books about surfing? Yeah, I've read all the books about surfing. I, I mean, I, if there's a book about surfing, I've read it. Okay, good. Well, um, have you talked to the great surfer about your desire to be a good surfer? And they're like, well, yeah, I've talked to the great surfer. Okay, well, you've read the book. And you've talked to the great surfer. Are you spending time with other surfers? Not surfing fans, but actual real legitimate surfers. Yes. Like last night we had dinner and we talked and it, with my surfing friends. And I'm like, okay, well, what else could it be? You've read the book and you've talked to the great surfer and you have spent time with other surfing people. Only thing I can think is you might need to get your surfboard and you might need to head out into the water and surf. Because the verse says... That peace and joy are found in surfing. And so that's how it is. Now, surfing is scary. Surfing is a risk. Surfing is difficult. It's not easy to do. But it is the surfing. It is riding the wave that fills you with peace and joy. And so, ladies and gentlemen, belief is what fills you with joy and peace. And belief is scary. And belief is a risk. And belief can be difficult. One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture is when someone walks up to Jesus and asks him to do a miracle, and he says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. So we can come to Jesus with belief, but not full tank of belief, but with belief. And that belief, that's what Jesus is looking for. And so when we read it in the book and it says, love your enemies... And we pray that we, God, want, help me love my enemies. And we're around other people that are trying to love their enemies. Well, listen, if your feet are still in the sand and you're not out there in the water, then I don't know what to tell you. Because we can't just read it and we can't just think about it. And we can't just be around other people. We actually have to take the risk. So faith is just right there connected, married to obedience. That's why we say you've got to trust and obey. If you want to be filled up with Jesus today... If you want to have that love and joy and peace and patience and all those things pouring out of your life, then you have to believe. You have to believe, and I know that's abstract, but it doesn't have to be abstract. Because if you believe, Jesus says, if you believe, then then you will obey. Belief is that step of risk where you take that step and you say, I don't don't know, but but I, I will try. I will obey. That's what belief looks like. And so Jesus fills the empty through faith. And he fills everything in every way. So if you're empty this morning or if you feel empty at some point this week, that's not a bad thing to feel. Because it is the empty that Jesus fills. And so go to Jesus this week with your emptiness and ask him to fill you. If you're skeptical this morning, Jesus invites you into the empty tomb. And for all of us, we need, to, we need to invite Jesus through faith. We often tell people here, the, the prayer of salvation is as simple as ABC. Admit your sin. Believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and forgives you of your sins. And then commit to follow him. Now here's what you need to know. Every time you hear me say that and you zone out because you're already a Christian, please don't do that. Because it's the same three steps for each one of you, us every single day. This first step is always admit you got to admit that you're still sitting in the car with a surfboard on the roof. you got to believe that if you take that surfboard down and you start wading out into the water, 
and he's going to fill you with peace and joy. And then you've got to commit. You've got to make a choice. You've got to make a choice that you're going to trust and obey. And Jesus will fill the emptiness.